open up with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 9 through 12, specifically this morning. Verses 9 through 12. I'm going to back up to verse 8 and start reading, but we're going to focus on verses 9 through 12 of Romans 15. So we continue to walk verse by verse through our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed. Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Proof and Praise of the Gentiles. The Proof and Praise of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 15. I'm going to begin in verse 8, read down through verse 12. But focus on the last half of verse 9 through verse 12. The text reads, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it and let us heed it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So we're going to jump right in the middle of Paul's argument here. Uh, I didn't think that last week you wanted me to preach all the way to 1230, so we kind of divided it up, this passage, a little bit. And so we're kind of jumping right in uh, to where the middle of what Paul is saying in this, in this section of Scripture, as, as it were. And so ever since chapter 13... Paul has been exhorting the church to love one another, to love one another sincerely, to, to have a welcoming as well as a sincere love. That this call to love is one that crushes our pride and our haughtiness. It is encouraging us to cultivate a humble and a forgiving temperament toward others especially towards those who we call brothers and sisters in Christ. This love, this humility should honor others more than it exalts self. Most of all, what this means is, is that welcoming other Christians who may be different than us, we welcome them because Christ has welcomed them. Whether a strong or a weak Christian whether a Jew or a Gentile Christian, we refuse to quarrel with each other over matters of preference and opinion. The weak are not to pass judgment on those who know that serving Christ and walking in holiness is not a matter of eating and drinking or celebrating certain days. But likewise, the stronger, not to cause their weaker brothers and sisters to stumble into sin by disobeying their consciences over these same issues. Instead, love calls for us to build one another up, 
not to tear one another down as Christians. Love calls for us to, to seek the pleasure of our neighbors in Christ over our own pleasure. Love calls upon us to welcome one another as Christian brothers and sisters, to bear with one another in our failings and in our shortcomings, to seek to live in harmony with each other despite our differences, so that God might be glorified in our lives. Now the utmost example, then, of our differences is seen in the natural division of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. That God's plan from all eternity is to glorify Himself through the union of these true groups in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the point that Paul is making in uh, Romans 15, 8 and 9. That of all the people on the earth, God chose a childless man named Abram who was living in a Chaldean city named Ur. And God promised out of His own free and sovereign grace to bless this man. He promised to make from him a great name and a great nation. God promised him offspring and land. God made, him, uh, made with him an everlasting covenant. Changing his name to Abraham. For he would not simply be an exalted father, but he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And so through this father, this patriarch, God established a family line. God reaffirmed his everlasting covenant with Abraham's son Isaac. And he reaffirmed that same covenant with Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel and his sons were the heads of 12 tribes over that family. The family of Israel would eventually grow and multiply and become the nation of Israel. And from this nation, God would make an everlasting covenant with David, the king, establishing a dynasty of kings. And from this dynasty, a particular anointed one would come. One who would reign as king forever, forever sitting on the throne of David. And this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ, has come in the person of Jesus, the very incarnation of God Himself, that Jesus then is the offspring of Abraham, Jesus is the faithful Israelite, Jesus is the Judean king, Jesus is the long-awaited son of David. And like Romans 15, 8 says, this Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That means he ministered in his earthly life almost exclusively to Jewish people. To God's chosen people Israel. That he never really left the promised land. That God's purpose in this ministry is to keep and even confirm the veracity of those everlasting promises that he made to the patriarchs of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So many centuries prior to this. In Jesus' ministry to the Jewish people, in His death, in His teaching and miracles, in His perfect life, His crucified death, His glorious resurrection, in His ascension to the right hand of the Father, in Jesus' ministry to the Jews, God put His own truthfulness on display. 
It is an important reminder that God always keeps His promises. That's what it says. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But God's promises to the patriarchs always had another aspect to them besides merely to the circumcised, to the nation of Israel. The promise of Abraham was never just a promise to be a blessing to his family alone, but instead it was through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And the promise was never that Abraham would merely be the father of a nation, but that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. And God didn't just promise this man that he would have a lot of children, but that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. See, the true children of Abraham are not only the physical descendants of the patriarch, they are those who share the faith of Abraham, faith in the promise of God. That's what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In fact, it goes down the next verse. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he's been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul writes in Galatians about this this same blessing of Abraham that was promised to Abraham, this, this promise to the patriarch. That it has come now also being uh, in the Gentiles are included in this promise. He says in Galatians 3.14 that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles through Christ. Christ, the the son of Abraham, the the son of David, Christ, the true Israelite, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, he is the offspring that that the promise meant was pointed to. He is the fulfillment of that promise. And all those Gentiles then who believe in that son of Abraham, in that son of David, who believe in that son of God, They are now partakers and included in the promise. They become children of Abraham as well. They become uh, the true Israel as well. So he says, if you are Christ, in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the promises then are yours if you're a Gentile, if you have believed in Christ. So Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, but also and then in verse 9, and, and, praise God there's an and there, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Because we were not originally included, right? We were without hope in this world. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. But we've been brought near and made, and made heirs and, and sons that the Gentiles also might praise, might, might praise God, glorify God, worship God for not just the truthfulness of God, but the mercy of God. That's what last week's talked about. And then what we see is that right there in the middle of, of verse 9 and all the way through verse 12, Paul gives four verses, four Old Testament scriptures. He says, as it is written, and again it is said, and again, and again Isaiah says. So, so he gives these four scriptural verses to, to prove what he's just said, to, to show that. Uh, in the second half of verse 9, he writes, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is uh, a quote that is quoted in two places in the Bible. 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49, which contain the same thing. The, the psalm is 18.49, and that psalm is, is included as a whole in 2 Samuel 22. So it says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. You know, when we, t when we talk about Gentiles, we're just talking about anyone who is not a Jew. And the word Gentile literally means the nations, the peoples. Ethne is the, is the Greek word. There. We get the word ethnicities from it, the peoples that, that are talking. So you can say, I will praise you among the Gentiles, or you can say, I can praise you among the peoples. I can praise you among the nations. It's talking about all of those who are non-Jews. It's what it's referring to. And then in verse 10, it says, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. This goes back to the book of Moses. This goes back to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, where he says, uh, Rejoice with Him, O heavens, O nations. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and, and cleanses his people's land. Then we see uh, in verse 11, Psalm 117 and verse 1. It's only a, a two-verse psalm, but the first verse is listed. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations. Let the peoples extol him. <coughs> And then in, chapter, in verse 12, again, he specifically says that Isaiah says this. And he's quoting Isaiah 11.10 and also uh, a portion of Isaiah 42.3. In Isaiah 11.10, it, it says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for, all, for the peoples, of him shall the nations, the Gentiles, inquire his resting place, shall be glorious. But then there is a, a, 
an illusion there at the end. In him the Gentiles will hope. And this comes from Isaiah 42, 4, 42.3. Uh, and that's, that passage is quoted by Matthew in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. And this is, this is what the extended passage of that says. That's quoted from Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Go back to verse 8 of Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He's saying here in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. In him the Gentiles will hope. And so verse 12 of Romans 15 is a combination of Isaiah 11.10 with Isaiah uh, 42.3, if it were. Um, what I want you to see is what Paul is doing. And, and I have two main points this morning. The first is the, the presupposition of scriptural proof. That's the first. The presupposition of scriptural proof that, that we see here that all four of these quotations mention Gentiles, mention the nations. He's, he's proving that, that what, he's, what he wanted to say here is that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to show two attributes of God, specifically God's truth and God's mercy, to specifically two groups of people and make them one, to the Jews, the circumcised, as well as to the Gentiles. That he's brought them together in Christ. The two, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. He's made one new man from the two. So all four of the quotations that he gives from the Old Testament scriptures are mentioned these Gentiles. And the first three of those that he mentions, mentions praise. The praise that of the Gentiles. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, he's proving that from the scripture. Also, he's saying this, this is not just taught in one place in the Old Testament. He could give you more than he's given you, but he's named four to remind you that this is, this is a common theme throughout the, the Scripture. Paul himself is an inspired author. But he hasn't rest on his own inspiration or divine authority. He is hearkening back to what, what the Old Testament has said and proving what he is now saving through the Old Testament. He is giving us an example to follow when we need to make up a, a point about what the Bible teaches, to multiply passages, to, to demonstrate from different places. For he takes from the Old Testament section of the law and the prophets and what's called the writings. That's when sometimes you read, uh, you hear Jesus talk about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, he's taking from different sections 
of the Old Testament scriptures, they all teach that the Gentiles are to be expected to come and worship and praise God at some point. Murray said, all of these quotations are adduced to support the proposition that one of the designs in Christ being made a minister to the circumcision was the salvation of the Gentiles. And they show the extent to which the apostles esteemed the Old Testament had envisioned the outreach to all the nations of that blessing which lay at the center of the Abrahamic covenant. Robert Haldane rightly says uh, as well that this shows that divine truth ought to be exhibited to gainsayers in all its strength with the display of all its evidence in proportion as prejudice is opposed to any truth. It is necessary to fortify it with multiplied evidence. He said the Jews were greatly prejudiced against that part of the will of God which the apostle now teaches. And he heaps scripture upon scripture to overcome their prejudices. Although his own authority, his own declaration were as valid as those of the inspired writers whom he quoted. I, I remember this, this very thing happening to me as I was coming to the doctrines of sovereign grace as when I was, I didn't grow up being taught the doctrines of sovereign grace and remember as I was reading my Bible uh, again and again uh, in, in college when my dad had passed away the, the truths of Christianity were, were just coming to me uh, in, in their fullness I was reading my Bible regularly for the first time in my life I was hearing preaching from a, a local campus ministry I never heard preaching like that before he was actually taking the Bible and telling us what it said and I was like this guy knows the Bible better than anybody I've ever heard of I don't this I don't and, and then I thought he can't believe some of that stuff he can't believe some of that stuff that I that I hear uh, about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Surely he doesn't believe those things. Well, I found out that he did. And I also found out as I'm reading through the Bible that I see this sovereign God on every page of Scripture. That I got to where my prejudices against those doctrines was overcome by just the, the sheer weight of what the Scripture said. That at first I didn't like it. I didn't like what the Scripture said, but I couldn't argue that the Scripture said it. And then it was only later that I, that I grew to understand, this is important. That, that, that I, I began to cherish these doctrines. And so Paul is writing to a group of people who all of their lives have, have been told, you're the chosen people of God. And they were. That's, that's very true. But the, the scriptures had been pointing all along that there's going to be a day when the Gentiles too are going to be included in this. And for many years they kind of had overlooked that, ignored it, didn't focus on those things. And so now... Paul is opening this up to them. It's, he's opening up. He had to learn it himself. The Lord had to overcome him, right? He had to strike him blind that he might see these things as well in Christ. 
what I want you to see is really what Paul is doing here. He's showing the, the, the unity of the Bible. That the New Testament is not presenting something foreign or completely disconnected from the old. That what, what, what's happening in the church with the combination and union of the Jew and the Gentile is not unexpected or surprising. It was always there. And it was just overlooked for many parts. That, this, that the Bible presents not two stories, but one story, one grand unfolding of revelation. And there is in the Old Testament promise overwhelmingly and then fulfillment of those promises. That what we find in the church and the inclusion and participation of the Gentiles is not some kind of plan B from God. In some kind of oops, I got it wrong and they didn't accept Jesus. And so we're going to include them now. This is not what's happened. This, the plan has always been this union of believing Jew and believing Gentile. That the church, as we know it, is always the goal. So not only the complementary sort of unity of the Bible do we see here, but the absolute truth of the Bible. Paul is doing what, what we have learned and what we were taught to do. If you want to, to prove a point, and there, if you want to be taken seriously and have weight and authority to it, you, you say what God has said. The Bible says, God says this. And that's what, he's say, that's what he's doing here. He's not basing it on his own apostolic authority, though he has apostolic authority. He is quoting passage after passage of Scripture because... Those are Holy Spirit inspired. They're absolutely true. And he's saying you can trust what I am telling you, what I have been saying, because the Scriptures teach this again and again and again. Now we can take Scripture. It's possible for the devil to twist Scripture, certainly. But here is what he's doing. He is, he is saying believe this, trust this, because the scriptures have always taught this. There are some, even preachers in, in today's, and we could multiply who they are and talk about that, but there are some even preachers today that will say, stop saying the Bible says, stop saying the Bible says. I'm like, what else are we going to do? This is the word of God. Not everyone believes the Bible. I understand that. It's not authoritative to, to all people, but it's, it's the Word of God regardless. And the people of God, the sheep of God, will hear the voice of God as He speaks in His Word. So we remind them what the Bible says regardless of whether they believe the Bible or not. Not just the, the complementary unity of the Bible and the absolute truth of the Bible, but the continued relevance of the Bible. This Deuteronomy passage that Paul is quoting here was written 1,400 years before he is quoting it. 3,400 years now for us. But 1,400 years before he's quoting it, and he's saying it applies to your situation right now. 
We go back to verse 4 of Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That was true then, it's true now. Whatever was written in former days was written for our, it has continued relevance for us. It's not outdated or old-fashioned. It is still and always will be the Word of God. God hasn't changed His mind. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You, you might be saying, Pastor Dax, you used to talk about this all the time, and I hope so. If there's anything in, in this new year or in this year, in, in this culture that we need over and over again and over and over again is to rely on the truth of Scripture that it has not changed. Amen. To go back to the Word of God, to continue to look at the Word of God, to continue to open the Word of God, to continue to see its relevance for us, its our hope and our understanding. The second point is this, the prediction of the Gentile praise. Just what these passages, what these verses say and I want you to see that first of all, what they say is that the Gentiles will praise God. We saw that all four passages mentioned Gentiles, that three of the, the, the four mentioned the word praise, just as he said, that the Gentiles will praise God, but they'll do so in conjunction with the Jewish people. They'll do so in conjunction with the Jewish people. Look what it says. At first, in verse 9, this is David that is speaking. Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, David says, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. David is speaking after he just won great victories against the enemies of God, against the other nations, Israel, he as king of Israel has just won against, against the other nations. He says, and I'll praise you among the other nations and sing to your name. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage then is the greater David. As if Jesus himself is speaking, right? The, the son of David. It says, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, having defeated the enemies of God. Moses then, in verse 10, commands the Gentiles, rejoice, O Gentiles, rejoice, O nations, rejoice with His people. With the people of God. Rejoice with His people. You're included. Rejoice with His people. People. This combination of, of Jew and Gentile worshiping together, rejoice. We don't see that fulfilled much. You, you think about Rahab, you know, Ruth, uh, just a, a, a handful here and there that, that praise the Lord with the people of God, the Gentiles that come to the Lord. So we don't see that immediately from, from Moses's command or even invitation and really the way it is written in Moses in the song of Moses again Israel has just defeated her enemies which were other nations other peoples and in some way this is more just a 
a warning, a threat to them. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, or, or you're going to be struck down. You're going to be like these other enemies. Rejoice with the Gentiles. There's, there's a, not just a, but now Paul tells us that it's not merely a threat, which it continually is. For if you're, if you're a Gentile, a, a person who has not accepted the Lord, rejoice. You need, you need to kiss the Son, lest He become angry and be kindled in the way. There's, a, there's always a threat, but also there's an invitation to rejoice with the people of God, to join with the people of God is open to you. Again, Psalm 117.1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. This is kind of the ultimate, if you can't beat them, join them sort of situation. Douglas Moo says, The Gentiles are now themselves praising God and doing it with His people, namely Israel. So what the Old Testament text calls on the Gentiles to do, they now, through God's mercy to them in the gospel, are able to do join in with the praise of God. Not only will the Gentile brigs be in conjunction with the Jews, it will be with the coming of the Messiah. We see that in verse 12, that the root of Jesse will come, even who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. When are the Gentiles going to fulfill these commands to rejoice and with the people of God, to come and worship with the people of God? When Israel come, when, when the Messiah comes, when the root of Jesse comes. So at his first coming in this case. That there's going to be a root of Jesse. A Messiah is going to come from the physical line of Jesse, who is a Jew, right? And this this line of Jesse, of David, of Abraham, he, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He was physically a Jew. But he will rule over, it says, the Gentiles as well. The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule, to rule over the Gentiles. When does the Messiah rule over the Gentiles? Right now. Right now, Christ is reigning sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over His church, believing Jews and Gentiles. And in Him, the Gentiles will hope. They will hope in this Messiah. So there will be a distinguishing between Gentile and Gentile. Those who hope in the coming Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and those who do not. So we've seen the Gentiles will praise in conjunction with the Jews. The Gentiles will praise with the coming of the Messiah. And they will praise the Lord for His mercy and His truthfulness. It says in verse uh, 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. Again, I said this is a short psalm. It, it's, there's just two verses. The second verse is this. It says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love. Great is His mercy toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. 
It's interesting that steadfast love or mercy and faithfulness or truthfulness are the two things that are said for him, for called upon for them to praise. The Gentiles praise him for his truth and his mercy. And if we go back to verses 8 and 9, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and to, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Those are the, specifically the two attributes of God that are called upon for us to, to praise God for. For his mercy and his truthfulness to us in Christ. It's important as we look at these four, four passages that Paul is quoting that we see what what Paul is doing in, in quoting Scripture, in proving the point that he's trying to make, and in, in what, what the passages are actually saying about the Gentiles praising God because of Christ, at the coming of Christ with conjunction to the Jewish people for the mercy and truthfulness of God, but also that we don't miss the forest for the trees here. And that is, he's saying all of this in a context so that we'll be encouraged to welcome one another, to get along with one another, to worship together in harmony, to hope in Christ, and to abound in that hope in Christ. That's, what, that's the ex exhortation that he's trying to make. Not just that that we understand this relationship of Jew and Gentile. It's that we understand this relationship of Jew and Gentile in Christ so that we'll get along. So that we'll worship together. So that we'll praise Him together. So that we'll welcome another, one another in Christ because Christ has welcomed each of us. That's really the, the hope here. That we'll forgive one another. That we'll love one another sincerely. That we'll walk in in humility and in love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> Father,